you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. The following is a reading from Andrew Hellman, alias Adam Horn, his life, character, and crimes, which was in the Baltimore Sun for December 2nd, 1843, and as that article doesn't describe everything that it mentions in the article, it is this is also a reading from another atrocious murder from the Carlisle Weekly Herald in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, for May 3rd, 1843. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Obtained from the most authentic sources the particulars of the following sketch of the life of Andrew Hellman, which will doubtless prove satisfactory to our readers and may be relied on as correct. It will also serve to correct the many unfounded rumors which have connected his name with so many deeds of guilt, besides the supposition of innumerable others that have not yet come to light. He will be found to be bad enough in all conscience, even when called on to father only his own misdeeds, which, with the one of which he stands convicted, places him on the very pinnacle of guilt. Andrew Hellman, alias Adam Horn, was born on the 24th of June in the year 1792 and is now in his 53rd year at the ancient town of Worms on the River Rhine, renowned as the place where the German Diet assembled in the year 1521, before which Luther was summoned to answer the charge of heresy, and is a portion of the Hessian state of Hesse-Darmstadt. He is, therefore, a Hessian by birth, and is the son of Hessian parents. We have before us a certificate, signed by a priest, and dated at the town of Worms in the year 1792, giving the names of his parents, and certifying to the day of his birth and baptism under the name of Andrew Hellman. There can, therefore, be no doubt as to this being his true name. His parents gave him a good education, and at the age of 16, he was bound an apprentice to a tailor at Wazupenheim in Petersheim County, Germany, where he remained until he became of age, when a desire to roam induced in him to start off with only his thimble and his scissors in his pocket, with the aid of which, according to his own representation, he worked his way through all the German states, as well as to other parts of Europe. Returning again to Wazupenheim in the fall of 1816, after an absence of nearly three years. He could not long content himself there, however, and the hear- and hearing of the golden harvest that was to be reaped in America, and having a desire to see a country that he had heard so much about, 
he took passage for Baltimore, where he arrived in the year 1817, being then about 25 years of age. As far as can be learned, after his arrival, he worked for a merchant tailor of this city for nearly three years. When he started for Washington, and passing through the ancient city of Georgetown, soon found himself in Loudoun County, Virginia. It may be proper here to remark that during his stay in Baltimore, he so conducted himself as to secure many friends. He was then a young man of good personal appearance, sober, steady, and industrious, well-behaved and mild in his demeanor, and withal intelligent and well-informed. He seemed, however, to have imbibed a lasting dislike to the whole female race, looking upon them as mere slaves to man, whilst he considered man, in the fullest sense of the term, as the lord of all creation. Woman, according to his opinion, was created only as a convenience for the other sex, to serve in the capacity of a ewer of wood and a drawer of water, to cook his victuals, darn his stockings, never to speak but when spoken to, and to crouch in servile fear when in his presence. He regarded the scriptural phrase applied to the sex as a helpmeet for man, in its literal sense, whilst he would deny, deny her all social privileges and rights. That this is still his opinion may be aptly illustrated by a conversation held with him a few days ago, since his conviction, by a gentleman who was starting for Ohio, who asked him if he had any message to send to his son Henry. He replied, yes, tell Henry that if he should ever marry, to marry a religious woman. The gentleman replied that he thought he ought also to advise him to embrace religion himself, as it was as necessary on the part of the man as the woman in order to secure permanent happiness. No, 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 passionately exclaimed the old reprobate. Woman must know how to hold her tongue, and obey, she has nothing to do with man. He arrived in Loudoun County, Virginia in the fall of the year 1820, and stopped at the farmhouse of Mr. George M. Abel, situated about four miles from Hillsboro, and about seven miles from Harper's Ferry. Mr. Abel was an old and highly respected German farmer, who had emigrated to this country a number of years previous, and had reared around him a large family of sons and daughters. The old gentleman took a liking to Hellman, and unfortunately, as a sequel will prove, allowed him to stop or board with him, and being a good workman, he soon succeeded in having plenty to do, plenty of work to do, from the farmers of the surrounding country. He remained through the winter, and in the spring of 1821 started for Baltimore. He, however, remained in Baltimore for but a few months, and in July again returned to his old quarters at Mr. And Mr. Abel's, where he had so effectually succeeded in concealing his opinion of the sex, or had perhaps been lulled from, his, from its expression by the scenes of happiness, contentment, and equality that prevailed among the different sexes of the household of the respected old Loudon farmer, that he was allowed to engage the affections of one of his daughters. Mary Abel was at this time in, her 20, in the twentieth year of her age, a blithe, buxom, and light, light-hearted country girl, with rosy cheek and sparkling eye, totally unacquainted with the deceitfulness of the world, and looking to the future to be a counterpart of the past, which had truly been to her one continued round of innocent pleasure and happiness. With a kind and affectionate disposition, and a thorough and practical knowledge of all the varied duties of housewifery, she was just, just such a one as, as would be calculated, if united to a kind and affectionate husband, 
to pass through the checkered scenes of life with all the sweets of contentment and but few of the bitters of discord. But such was not her lot. Deceived by his profession of love and promises of unceasing constancy, and with the approval of her father and family, in the month of December 1821, she became the wife of Andrew Hellman. They continued for two years in the family in the family of Mr. Abel, during only a portion of which time the presence of relations and friends were sufficient to restrain the fiendishness of his disposition. After the lapse of a few months, he appeared to be gradually losing all affection for her, though for the first sixteen months, with the exception of this apparent indifference, everything passed off quick quietly. On the 8th of August, 1822, Louisa Hellman, their first daughter, was born, which, however, he looked on as a serious misfortune, and had they not been under the parental roof, sad would doubtless have been the poor mother's fate. In the month of April 1823, about sixteen months after marriage, an unfounded and violent jealousy took possession of his very soul, and all the pent-up ferociousness of his disposition toward her sex broke forth with renewed violence. He accused her with infidelity of the basest kind, and on the 27th of the ensuing September, when Henry Hellman, their second child, who is now living in Ohio, was born, he wholly disowned it and denounced its mother as a harlot. From this moment, all hopes of peace or happiness were banished, but like poor Melinda Horn, she clung to him and prayed to her God to convert and reform him, hoping that his eyes would be ultimately open to reason and common sense. But alas, it was all in vain. In return for every attention and kindness, she received nothing but threats and imprecations. Instead of the endearing name of wife, she was always called my woman, and his ideas of the degrading duties and dishonorable station of woman fully applied to her. He had, however, never used any personal violence, and she consequently felt bound, for the sake of her children, not to desert him. In the spring of 1824, he rented a a small place in Loudoun, about a mile from her father's, where they lived for nearly eight years, during which time, in June 1827, John Hellman, a third child, was born, at which time he openly declared that if she ever had another, he would kill her. This, however, was her last child. On one occasion, whilst living in this place, he left her in a fit of passion and went to Baltimore leaving both wife and children almost destitute, where he remained about three months and returned with promises of reformation. In the meantime, her father, having several sons grown around him, began to cast about for some mode of, ha- of giving them all a start in the world, and finally sold a portion of his farm and bought a section of land for each of them in different counties of Ohio. John Abel and George Abel went to Stark County, Ohio, and Hellman received for his wife a section of land in Carroll County in the same state. They remained in Loudoun, however, until 1831, when they removed to Carroll County, though he refused to live on the section of ground belonging to his wife, apparently through ill feeling toward her. When he left Loudoun County, he disposed of property to the amount of at least $3,000. How he had accumulated so much in the short space of ten years when he had come there penniless, was, and still is, regarded as a mystery. Although possessed of a close and miserly disposition, denying his family nearly all the comforts of life, 
with the exception of food, of which he of which he could not deprive them without suffering himself, it seemed impossible from the fruits of his needle so large an amount could have been accumulated. The five years he passed in Carroll County we pass over in silence, with the exception of the remark that the lot of the, of the poor wife during the whole of this time was one of continual unhappiness, whilst the children also regarded him with fear and trembling, particularly poor Henry, who he, who he wholly disowned. This treatment on the part of her brutal husband, of course, entwined her heart more closely to that of Henry's, who was then in his twelfth year, and the knowledge of this increased his growing enmity toward her and him. When he left Carroll County, he was in possession of two fine farms, which he sold for a large amount. They were located within half a mile of the now thriving city of Carrollton. His removal to Logan County was hailed by his wife with joy and delight, for there resided her, true, her two brothers, General John Abel and Mr. George Abel, who had emigrated there some eight years previous, and were now surrounded by large and happy families. As good fortune would have it, he bought a fine farm, the dwelling of which was within a hundred yards of General Abel's, and but a short distance from that of her brother George. And now poor Mary expected, and did occasionally, meet a countenance that beamed on her with affection and kindness. She could there, when an opportunity afforded, seated at the hospi hospitable hearth of one of her brothers, go over the scenes of enjoyment and happiness that they had passed together in old Loudon, and the memory of her good and kind-hearted father and mother, who were long since departed, would often call a tear to the, to the eye of the afflicted mother. They arrived in Logan County in the spring of 1836, at which time the three children had arrived at an age when they became useful about the farm. Louisa was in her 14th year, Henry was 13, and John was about 9 years of age. They were three fine, intelligent children, such as a man should, should have been proud of. Still, they appeared to have no share in their father's affection. Money and property was the god he worshipped, and although in reality he was far better off than many of his surrounding neighbors, still he kept all his family dressed in the meanest manner, so much so that they were compelled to remain at home on all occasions. The children were, however, knit onto the very heart of the mother, and she looked on them with all the fond hope with which a mother usually regards her offspring. About a year after their arrival at Logan, Mrs. Hellman on one occasion had poured out a bowl of milk with the intention of drinking it, but before she got it to her lips, she found that the, ta that the top of it was completely covered with a quantity of white powder, which had at that moment been cast upon it. Immediately suspecting it to be poison, and having no mode of testing it, she threw it out, and undoubtedly, from subsequent events, thus preserved her life. There was no one at the, at the time in the house but her husband, and he denied all knowledge of it. She was under the impression at the time that he had attempted to poison her, and it is now generally believed that that was the case. For the year following this event, he apparently became more morose and sullen, but his family had become used to it, and expected nothing better. In the month of April 1839, all three of the children were suddenly taken sick, and laid in great suffering for about 48 hours, when Louisa, the oldest, aged 17 years, and John, the youngest, aged 12 years, died. 
and both were buried in one grave, leaving the mother inconsolable for her loss. Her whole attentions, however, were still required for poor Henry, who laid several days in great suffering, but he finally recovered. This was a sad stroke to the heart of the already grief-stricken mother, which was doubly heavy on her, from the firm belief she entertained that their death had resulted from poison, and that that poison had been administered to them by the hand of their father, by that hand which should have brushed away from their path every thorn that could harm them. The belief is now general throughout the county that their blood is also on the head of Andrew Hellman, but whether true or false remains to be decided between him and his God. It would seem, if the charge be correct, to have been a, mar a miraculous intervention of providence that poor Henry, the child of misfortune, the one alone above all others that his father disliked and ill-treated, was the one that outlived the effects of the deadly potion. Happy would he doubtless now be could he disown such a father, and forever obliterate from memory his existence. He is, however, now loved and respected by all who are acquainted with him, having fully inherited all the good qualities of his unfortunate mother, and fully proving the saying that a bad man may be the father of a worthy son. Just entering on manhood, he bids fair to reclaim, by a just and honorable life, a name that has been tarnished by the most detestable acts of crime and guilt. It may be here stated, in justice to Hellman, that, since his conviction of the, of the murder of Melinda Horn, he has been questioned with regard to the death of his children, and although he did not deny the murder of his first wife, he positively asserts that he had no hand in their death. He, however, will find it difficult to satisfy those who witnessed the heart-rending scene, and his utter callousness as to the result, that he is not also their murderer, that the blood of his innocent offspring does not lie on his, does not rest on his head, equally with that of the unborn child of his second victim. The bodies, we learn, were not examined to discover the cause of death. The suspicion as to their having been poisoned, having been kept the secret in the breasts of the members of the family, for the sake of the poor mother, whose hard lot might have been embittered in case they should have been unable to sustain the charge. As bad as they then thought him to be, they could scarcely believe him guilty of such a crime. But experience has since taught them that he was capable of anything, let it be ever so heinous and criminal, and not even a denial under the solemnity of a confession can now clear him of the charge. The two children, as has already been stated, died in the month of April 1839, and on the 26th of September 1839, five months after, the poor mother met her terrible fate. The intervening time had been passed in fear and trembling, and she watched over and guarded her only remaining child with tenfold care and anxiety. She feared that the blow which she thought had been aimed mainly at the head of the dis disowned Henry was still reserved for him and she therefore followed him with the argus eye of a mother. When evil or danger threatened, she watched his departure, and longed for his return when absent at, the, at his daily labor, labor, and folded him to her heart as its only solace, under the heavy weight of sorrow and affliction she had been called on to endure. Henry, Henry loved his mother equally well, and had done much to ease her heart of its heavy burden. On the 26th of September, Hearing that her brother George was unwell, she gladly embraced the opportunity of sending Henry to assist his uncle in the work of the farm for a few days, 
knowing that there at least he would be out of harm's way. It was the first time that he had ever been absent from her, and when she bid him farewell and admonished him to take care of himself, little did she think that it was the last time she would ever see him, that ere the ensuing dawn of day she would, she would herself be lying a mangled and mutilated corpse. Such was the melancholy fact, as the sequel proved. The events of that night and the two succeeding days are wrapped in impenetrable darkness, no witness being left but God and the murderer that can fully de describe them. But such a scene as we are left to imagine, we will endeavor to narrate. On Saturday morning, the 28th of September, 1839, Mrs. Rachel Abel, the wife of Mr. George Abel, came to the house to see her sister-in-law, and so soon as she entered the door, she was surprised to see Hellman lying in bed in the front room, with his head, face, and clothing covered with blood. With an exclamation of wonder, she asked him what was the matter. He replied, affecting to be scarcely able to speak from weakness and loss of blood, that two nights previous, at a late hour, a loud rap had summoned him to the door. On opening it, two robbers had entered, one a large dark man, meaning a negro, and a small white man, when he had, when he had immediately been leveled to the floor with a heavy club. How he had gotten into bed, he said he could not tell but that he had been lying there suffering ever since, unable to get out. On hearing this story, and from his bloody appearance and apparent faintness, not doubting it, Mrs. Abel exclaimed, Where in the name of God is your wife? To which he replied, I do not know. Go and see. On pushing open the back room door, a scene of blood met her view, that it would be impossible to fully to describe. In the center of the room lay the mangled corpse of the poor wife with her blood drenching the floor, whilst the ceiling, walls, and furniture were also heavily sprinkled with the, with the streams which had evidently gushed from the numerous wounds she had received in the dreadful struggle. Mrs. Abel immediately left the house, and proceeded with all dispatch to the house of General John Abel, which was but a short distance off, and relating to him the story of Hellman and the condition of his sister, he immediately pronounced her to have been murdered by her husband. Charging her, as well as his own wife and family, not to go to the house again, until some of the neighbors had entered, he proceeded to make the fact known, and in a short time, a large number had assembled. In answer to their inquiries, Hellman told the same story, and with faint voice and apparent anguish, pointed to the bloody and apparently mutilated condition of his head, still lying prostrate in his own bed. The condition of the house also bore evidence of having been ransacked by robbers, everything having been emptied out of the drawers and chests and thrown in confusion on the floor. His story being credited by the neighbors, he was asked where he had left his money, and on looking at the designated place, it was found to be gone. A small amount of money, $16.60, belonging to Henry, which had been deposited in the heft of his chest, also had been absconded. The reader can doubtless imagine the scene, and the commiseration of the neighbors for the unfortunate victims of the robber and the midnight assassin. At this moment, General Abel entered, and shortly after him, a coroner and a physician. Twelve men were immediately selected as a jury of inquest to examine the cause of the death of Mrs. Hellman. The jury being sworn, and having entered on their duty, General Abel openly charged Andrew Hellman 
with being her murderer. The jury were struck with, with astonishment as they looked at Hellman, lying prostrate in his bed, and demanded of the accuser what evidence he had to substantiate such a charge. The afflicted brother, in reply, stated that he unfortunately had no evidence, but desired that the physician in attendance would examine Hellman's wounds. The examination was accordingly made, and the result was that not a scratch, a cut, or a bruise could be found on any part of his person. Not only morally, but practically was it thus established beyond the shadow of a doubt that her blood was on his head. He had evidently taken up a quantity of her blood and thrown it on his head and shoulders in order to give credence to his story, which act alone served as positive evidence of his guilt. On a search being made of the premises, his axe was found, leaning against the bar post, about fifty yards from the house, reeking with blood, and hair sufficient sticking to it to identify it as that of the deceased. His knife, covered with blood, was found concealed on the hearth of the chimney. His tailor socks were found in the cellar, covered with blood. And the shirt he had on, as well as his arm, were saturated with blood up to the elbow. There was, therefore, nothing wanting to identify him fully and conclusively as the murderer, and he was forthwith committed for trial, and the remains of his victim, having laid two days exposed before discovery, were, on the evening of the same day, followed to the grave by a large concourse of friends and relatives, and deposited by the sides of her two children, whom she had sorrowed over but five months previous. From the condition of the body, as well as other marks in the room, there remained no doubt but that the murder had been committed in the most cold-blooded, premeditated, and malicious manner. The body was lying on the floor, but from the fact that a large quantity of blood was found in the center of the bed, it is supposed that she was lying asleep at the time of the attack, wholly unconscious of any impending evil. The stains on the pillow indicated that she had partially risen up after the first blow, and had been knocked back again on the bed. The soles of her feet were saturated in blood, which led to the belief that she had managed to get out of bed and had stood erect on, in her own blood on the floor before she was finally dispatched. Six distinct cuts, apparently inflicted with the handle of an axe, were discovered on her head. The hands and arms were dreadfully bruised, as if she had, in the same manner as a second victim, endeavored thus to ward off the blows aimed at her head whilst the little finger of the left hand and the forefinger of the right hand were both broken. A large gash, laying open the flesh to the bone, was visible on the right thigh, apparently inflicted with an axe, and across the whole length of the abdomen there extended a heavy bruise in the shape of a letter X, in the center of which was a, was a large mark of bruised blood, at least six inches square. An attempt had been made with the axe to sever the head from the body, and three separate gashes, passing nearly through the neck, the edge of the blade entering the floor, appear, appeared to have been the finishing stroke of the bloody deed. The fact of his having hewn up and dissected the body of Melinda Horn can no longer, therefore, be considered a matter of wonder. It was only the second act of the bloody drama, and well did he understand his part. The man who had passed, without being conscience-stricken, through such a scene of blood as that we have just described, was doubtless capable for any emergency 
and he probably disposed of his second subject with the same ease of mind that a butcher would quarter a calf. After he had been some time in prison, he confessed that he had hidden his money himself, and that it was in a tin cup behind two bricks on the breast of the chimney. A search was there made, and money to the, to the amount of $176.24 in gold, silver, and banknotes was found, with promissory notes to the amount of $838, making in all $1,014.24. There was also in the cup two certificates for sections of land in Mercer County, Ohio. The money belonging to his son Henry, which had been taken out of the chest, was found stuck in a crack on the jam of the chimney. His acknowledgement of the concealment of the money was, of course, looked on as a full confession of guilt. He, of course, obtained possession of it, and it is thought found some other means of transmitting it to a friend in this city, from whose hands he, he afterwards again obtained possession of it. His farm in Stark County, having three dwellings on it, and considered to be a very valuable piece of property, he deeded to his son Henry during his confinement, which is, in fact, the only worthy act with regard to this man that has yet come under our notice. A few months after his arrest, a true bill was found against him by the grand jury of Stark County, and he was brought out for arraignment before the Court of Common Pleas, and there made known his determination, as he had right to do, to be tried before the Supreme Court. At length, the term of the Supreme Court commenced, and two days before the close of its session, his case was called up for trial. Having secured eminent counsel, they urged on the, they urged on the court that the case would occupy more time than that allowed for the close of the term, and finally succeeded in having it postponed to the next term, which, meeting but once a year, caused a corresponding delay in the trial. He was accordingly remanded back to a back to the jail in Belfont, Logan County, Ohio, which was a large log building, from whence, on the 13th of November, 1840, after being confined nearly 14 months, he made his escape. It had been the custom to keep him confined in the cells only during the night in cold weather, allowing him to occupy an upper room during the day. Depending almost entirely for his security, on the heavy iron hobbles that were kept attached to his legs. The means whereby he escaped have been the subject of much controversy, and several persons have been implicated as accomplices, either before or after the, the fact. Since his arrest, he has, been, he has positively denied getting any assistance, and states that, having got the hobble off of one foot, he started in that condition, carrying them in his hand. On the night of his escape, he had been left upstairs later than usual, and there being no fastenings of any consequence on the door, he walked off. He was immediately pursued and tracked to the house of a man named Conrad Harpole, near East Liberty in Logan County, in the neighborhood of which a horse, belonging to one of his attorneys, was found running loose, and it was ascertained that he had there purchased a horse, saddle, and bridle, and continued his journey. He was then traced to Carrollton in Carroll County, where he had formerly lived, passing through an open day. He was, he was here spoken to by an old acquaintance, but made no reply. Some of his pursuers actually arrived in Baltimore before he did, 
and although the most diligent search was made for him, assisted by High Constable Mitchell, no further trace could be found of him. They, they, however, were under the opinion that he was concealed in the city, and finally gave up all, gave up all hope of detecting him. The next thing that was heard of him was in York, Pennsylvania, where, on the 28th of September, 1841, about ten months after his escape, he appeared before John A. Wilson, Esquire, a Justice of the Peace, and executed a deed for 640 acres of land in Mercer County, in favor of Charles Anthony, Esquire, one of his attorneys. We have heard it positively stated, though we cannot vouch for its correctness, that in the fall of 1841, which is about the time the deed just mentioned was executed at York, he was a resident of this city, and kept a small tailor shop on Pennsylvania Avenue, near Hamburg Street, where he was burnt out. If so, he then passed by another name, and had not yet assumed the name of Adam Horn. He made his appearance in Baltimore County, in the neighborhood of the scene of the last murder, early in, early in the year 1842, and commenced boarding at the house of William Poist in the month of May. On the ensuing 17th day of August 1842, he was married to Melinda Hinkle, as is already known to the readers of The Sun, as well as his deeds from that time up to the present. He is now awaiting sentence of death, and if guilty of no other crimes but those of which he stands publicly charged, is undoubtedly the greatest criminal that has ever been tried in this country. Few men have had the same opportunity to enjoy the blessings of life, even when worthy of its blessings, and few have so utterly disregarded them. At different periods, we find him in possession of a number of valuable farms, surrounded by a family that most men at his age would have been proud of. But by lending his ear to the whisperings of jealousy, bowing down to the golden idol of avarice, and listening to the teachings of the devil, he has thus dashed from his lips the proffered cup of happiness. His fate in history should be a warning to others to shun those unholy passions, which will inevitably make a hell of earthly existence, and lead to everlasting misery hereafter. Since his conviction, however, we learn that he has since become greatly changed, and under the guidance of a spiritual teacher, is seeking pardon of an offended God. He has expressed a great desire to see his son, Henry Hellman, and has written for him to come on without a moment's delay, and he will doubtless be here in the, in the course of the next week, as we learn he had expressed a desire to see his father before his death. A most shocking murder was recently perpetrated on the body of Mrs. Melinda Horn, wife of Adam Horn. Residing 22 miles from Baltimore on the Hanover Road near the Blue Bell Tavern. The unfortunate victim, it appears, had mysteriously disappeared from her home about four weeks since, and no intelligence could be had of her. The anxiety and suspicion of the neighbors becoming excited, they determined to institute search for her, and on Monday afternoon succeeded in finding the body enveloped in a coffee bag in a ditch of field fronting the house where it was thrown. The legs and arms were severed from the body and were found wrapped in coarse cloth. The head had been cut off entirely and has not yet been discovered. The deceased was about 18 years of age and had been married some 12 or 15 months. 
Her delicate situation at the time of the terrible event was such as to render the murder a double one. Circumstances tended strongly to fasten suspicion upon the husband, who is said to have so ill-treated his wife as to cause her to leave him for some time last fall. But she again returned and was subject to frequent misusages on subsequent occasions. Apprehending, possibly, that the body might be discovered, he left his home about two weeks ago and was arrested on Thursday last in the city of Philadelphia. The circumstances that led to the arrest of Horn and his subsequent conduct prove his identity and go far towards fixing the murder upon him. Since his arrest, it is strongly suspected that Horn is the individual who murdered his wife in Ohio some years ago and escaped detection and that his real name is Hellman. In tracing the identity of this individual with Andrew Hellman, the Baltimore Sun says, Andrew Hellman married a wife from Loudoun County, Virginia, and with her came to Baltimore, whence he migrated some three or four years ago to Ohio, and finally settled in Logan County in that state. While there, his unhappy wife, it seems, had to mourn the sudden and unaccountable death of her two children, and subsequently writing to her sister in Virginia on the subject, she stated her fears that her husband had poisoned them. Strange as it might appear, she yet continued to live with him, though haunted by such a hard suspicion until the monster imbued his guilty hands in her own blood and mutilated her remains by decapitation, concealing her head to prevent, most likely, the recognition of her person. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.